Heavenly Father, thank you for your many mercies to us. Thank you for this weekend that we have had. And now this afternoon, as we have our last two meetings of this weekend, we pray that your Holy Spirit will will remain and may it come in more power. We are living in the most wonderful day and age of earth's history, the most responsible, the most um, important day and age right before your coming. And I pray that the things that we study this afternoon and during this next hour will not just fill up time, but may it be something that indeed will bring revival and reformation and that will complete some of the things that we have started to study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I begin, going to look at um, if you were the devil, what would you do? What would you do if you were the devil? Um, before we look at that, I wanted to share uh, sometime this afternoon. I don't know what the schedule is, but I mean, as far as this, because it's not on the schedule, but. Uh, I hope that every one of you can can uh, hear Larry Roby. I don't know if he's going to be speaking right after I'm done or right before Ron Spear or right after Ron Spear or in place of Ron Spear. I'm not sure. But Larry works in the prison systems in California. And uh, the Lord is really using him to reach these thousands of people there, how many in the prison systems in California? How many thousands? Nearly 75,000. 75,000 people. You know, that's, uh, that's a good-sized city, and these people are there. Um, I tell you, the prison system, I guess uh, countries do the best they can do, because there's, but you know, there's getting more and more people, and conditions get more and more crowded. As the Spirit of the Lord leaves the country and as people get influenced with television and with, with uh, drugs and with everything else, uh, society, the mor- morals of society and the restraints of society are breaking away. And there's not room to hold everyone. And the people that are there are often crowded and they teach each other. Uh, and more than that, abuse each other. And... Uh, I think the most frightening thing in the world today would be to be sentenced to prison. Um, I tell you, I would do a lot. We should be anyway. Maybe that's where the Lord needs to send us. I don't know. But I, I would be doing a lot of praying. Um, there's only one safety in the prisons. It's not from the guards. It's from the Lord. And... Um, But you know, here are human beings, human beings that God created and died for. And some of them may have committed, uh, I'm sure that most of them, most of them are there honestly, I'm sure. There might be some people that are there that have been, uh, are, are there that shouldn't be there too. That will happen and it will happen more and more. The court systems aren't always just. And we're going to see less and less justice in the court systems as we draw near the end of time. Ellen White talks about judges who were influenced by alcohol and how Satan uses them. And uh, 
there's coming a time when we're going to face those judges and when there's going to be no justice left. And uh, I've been in a number of court cases with uh, church members over the years. And uh, often the courts are not interested in justice at all. All they're interested in is the technicality of the law. That's the whole thing, the technicality of the law. Whether you're innocent or guilty makes no difference. Too many times. It's the technicality of the law. If you've killed someone but there's a loophole in the law, fine. If you, you know... But on the other hand, if you're innocent and there's a technicality in the law of some kind, well then, that's too bad too. But uh, I have, Larry and I have talked together quite a bit since uh, we've been here. And I've got a real blessing. I know you well too. What would you do if you were the devil? Um... Now, I'd like us this morning to imagine, or this afternoon, to uh, imagine just for a little bit. We don't want to imagine this too long, but uh, maybe temporarily and briefly. I'd like us to suppose that we were the devil, and what would we do? Now, the reason I say this, you know, in sports games, if you have a the British are playing whoever else in football, the Italians or whoever, or if you have a cricket game or whatever it is. Uh, when it comes up to a championship game, the one team sits down or the coaches sit down and they try to think, now what would I do if I was the coach of the other team? What would I do? And they try to figure out everything that other team would do if they were the other team. Isn't that what they do? Sure, that's what they do. They sit down and they try to figure out uh, uh, exactly what the other team would do, especially if it's in a... Um, I, don't, I don't know a lot about sports over here. I know something about American football and uh, grew up playing soccer, actually. What, what's your football? But we don't have much professional soccer over there. So I don't know all the rules and everything. But I know in American sports... Uh, like football, they try to figure out, now I wonder what the other team is going to be doing. And they plan their whole game based upon what they think the other team is going to be trying to do. You know, in Great Controversy, Ellen White says, there's nothing Satan fears so much as that we, might, that we understand his strategies. What is he going, what are his plans? And... Um, I'd like to figure out maybe what his plans are. Let's look over here first at Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Now, is Satan intelligent or is he not intelligent? Super intelligent, isn't he? Most intelligent being that's ever been created. Next to God in intelligence. Here it says in Revelation 12, verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. What does Satan do to the world? He deceives the world. Now, do you suppose that Satan is a good deceiver or a poor deceiver? 
He's a good deceiver. Now, he loves for people to pitch, uh, picture him like with a pitchfork and that kind of thing, a split hoof and all that. Uh, somebody that comes down, just suppose that, that uh, you or I were home and knock at the door, you know. Suppose I was the devil and I came to your home and I knocked on the door and you came and I said, Hi, I'm the devil. I came to deceive you. Uh, you're going to stand there and be deceived? If somebody came to me like that, you know, I'd slam the door off, especially if it was a spirit form. I'd run the other way, scream, you know. God help me. Devil's here. And um, I wouldn't be deceived by that. Um, I wonder how the devil is going to work to deceive. How would we work if we were the devil? Well, there are several ways the devil, we know that the devil works. One way he works is not by coming down like the devil, but by coming down like a departed loved one. Like mommy or daddy, or like a little daughter that's departed, or whoever else it is. A loved one, a familiar person, that's a familiar spirit. Someone that we're familiar with. Coming down as a loved one. Of course, we know in the Bible it says in Job 14, 21, that when the dead go, they have no more a part of, to do with what's happening on earth. We know in Ezekiel 9, verse, um, uh, verses uh, 5 and 6, that w the dead know how much? They don't know anything, do they? And neither have they any more reward, anything that is done under the sun. Now... Uh, and that's why the Bible uh, gives a condemnation against anyone who conjures up the dead or is involved in spiritism or any of these things. That's why in Revelation 22 we find that those who are sorcerers are outside the kingdom because they have been associated with Satan. But, um, you know, if I was the devil, I know that I would deceive some people with acting like I was um, their loved one. But I'd have a hard time deceiving me that way or you that way. You see, if I was the devil and I came down to you like an aunt or an uncle or a mother or father, you wouldn't be deceived at all, would you? You would, you would say, Lord, help me. Here's the devil in the form of my mother. And uh, you would immediately turn to the Lord and you, you wouldn't be deceived. You would be drawn closer to the Lord maybe because you would know that the devil's after you. So that wouldn't deceive you. So what would you do if you were the devil? Now I want you to know that the devil is here to deceive everyone. He's here to deceive the whole world. But his great interest is the church of God. That's his interest. The elect. Who is it that he's trying to deceive? Does it say in Matthew 24, 23 and 24 when he says false Christ and false prophets will appear and shall deceive many a possible even who? The elect. That's who Satan's trying to deceive. Now I just know if I was the devil and was allowed to come down, I've wondered what I would do. So just suppose the Lord allowed the devil to come down and to become a human being, like Jesus was. Now I know that 
God doesn't allow the devil to come down and actually be incarnated. Although, did you know that Ellen White says that in some of the courts of justice, that evil angels sometimes come down and testify? She also says that good angels sometimes come down and testify. They actually come down as witnesses in some of these courts to influence courts. And so uh, Satan and his angels sometimes do come down in the form of people. But that's only temporary, you see. That They come down and they leave again. They vanish away after a while. But just suppose, and you'll see why I'm supposing this in a few minutes, just suppose that Satan was allowed to actually come down and become a human being and to stay down here as a human being, and maybe a hundred of his angels. What would they do? Well, I suppose that a few angels might become drug dealers. That's all right. Not too many, though. I couldn't waste too many if I was a devil. Maybe one. Maybe some I would allow to go into politics. It's all right. Two or three. I don't want too many to go into politics. I can waste a few there, and that's an important place, you see. Maybe two or three can go to politics. But I want to tell you where I'd have most of my angels going. Most of my angels I'd have going to church. First place I'd go would be to a revival meeting and get converted. First place I'd go. And I'd have all my angels going to revival meetings and all getting converted. Now, I'd let some of them become, maybe two or three, become Pentecostal. And they would speak in tongues and work miracles. And they'd have a great influence. Makes lots of money. Have a great following. But I'd have some of them decide to become high church, maybe Anglican, Lutheran or something. And then them I would send off to a, to a uh, seminary someplace, and they'd come out with Ph.D. degrees. You wouldn't catch them speaking in tongues. They would stand up and they would be cultured. They might even argue and, and, and sneer at these... Uh, these Pentecostal preachers. The Pentecostal preachers would sneer at them. Wouldn't it be fun to see them in a fight with each other, you know? Two angels fighting with each other, but actually coordinate, cooperating underneath. But here they are, putting on a mock battle, you know? Fighting with each other. Arguing with each other. Like, and so I'd have some become this religion and some that religion. But I want to tell you, if I was a devil, you know what religion I would become? I'd become a Seventh-day Adventist, of course. That's where I'd become. I'd become a Seventh-day Adventist. Now, it wouldn't be good enough, however, just to be a Seventh-day Adventist. If I was, if I was a devil and I became, I would be, go to a revival meeting and I would become baptized just as fast as I could and I'd drink it all in. And then I'd go off to college and I'd get, I'd become a minister is what I'd become. I'd become a minister. And I would come and I would start preaching. Now just suppose the devil became the preacher of your church. What kind of a preacher do you suppose he would be? I want to tell you, he would be the best preacher you have ever had. He would be dynamic, he would be smooth, and he would know how, he would be a good administrator. He would... He would raise the money. 
and he would win souls. Many, many souls. We're told in evangelism, page 313, that Satan is seeking to crowd in all of the people into the church that he can. Is Satan interested in soul winning? I want to tell you, Satan is interested in soul winning. He is in the full-time process of soul winning in the Adventist church. Ellen White says that. Also a notebook leaflet's page 14, I believe. Another place. I don't remember where the third place is I've read. Evangelism 313, though. You probably have that book. About two-thirds down the page. She says, Satan is seeking to crowd in all the false brethren into the church that he can. Is that an interesting statement? And you know, the sad thing is, we're cooperating with him too many times. We're not opposing him at all. We say, Satan, however many you want to bring in, I need all I can get in on the church books. I need to have, you know, a good record this year. God's not helping me. Maybe you can. But anyway, I, if the devil were your preacher, he would be smooth, the best preacher you've ever heard. He'd preach sermons that would just be on love and on righteousness. He would use that word a lot, righteousness by faith. He would talk about righteousness and love. Now, I have this from the Bible. I'm going to show you. These are the terms that Satan uses. Righteousness and love. I preached a whole sermon on this once, just before I left Hyattsville, where I pastored for five years. One of the people that I just baptized not too long ago, before that, very fine couple. In fact, they're out pastoring a church now. They came to our Bible conference, I mean to our Steps to Life um, Institute of Ministry Bible Worker Training Program, and now they've been up for a year pastoring a church up in New Hampshire, and a wonderful couple. But after that sermon, came to me later, he says, you know, for two weeks I tried to figure out whether you were the devil or not. <laughs> and I said, well, good. I'm glad that you... Uh, we're challenged. I want to tell you, if the devil were your pastor, I want to ask you, how many people within the church would be, would be influenced by his teaching before he'd been there a year? I'll venture to say that 99% of them would. I have noticed our Adventist people and our Adventist churches that you bring in this pastor or this pastor or this pastor. And I found that the pastors, whatever they teach, is what the people end up believing after a little while. They have no root, no rock, no grounding. Whatever is taught and whatever is preached is what the majority end up believing. I've noticed at the seminary that Whichever classes the students go in, that's, they end up becoming little professors. Whatever the professor teaches is what they end up believing by the time the year's over. And they go out and the church members they teach, they end up believing whatever they teach. You know, it's a scary thing to think that if the devil became the pastor of one of our churches, he'd have almost all, the, all of the members as his followers before a year was up. Almost all of them. There wouldn't be a handful left in most of our churches. Now somebody says, well, I want to go on beyond that. I want you to know that if I was the devil, I wouldn't stop at being a pastor. 
I'd want to be a pastor of a bigger and bigger church until I could get into the place where I was doing the one that was hiring the pastors. That's where I'd want to be. Where I could start hiring the pastors. And then I would start hiring pastors just like me. And I'd start weeding out the ones that weren't like me. And I would try to climb higher and higher. However high I could climb, that's where I would go. However much influence I could have. Now, you know, this is what I would do if I was a devil, but you know what? I happen to know that that's what the devil would do if he was a devil, and he is the devil. We know from the pages of inspiration that the way the devil works is try to infiltrate into other organizations. Ellen White has pages on the Jesuit organization, how they try to infiltrate. They can become a Protestant. They can become a Lutheran. They can become an Adventist. They can become whatever they want to. That's the way the devil works. That's his whole game plan. I saw an article in Church and State magazine, cover article that was about 10 years ago on how the the Jesuit organization had taken over the United States CIA. That's a central intelligence agency. And I thought, man, they're bold to publish this. It was never challenged either. I never saw a rebuttal or a challenge or anything else. It just published. That was all. Of course, it's never picked up by any papers, any of the news organizations. But there it was. And the article went in on how they did it. You know how a secret organization works. You see, if you are... If you are uh, a Jesuit, let's suppose that you have 100 Jesuits and you have your orders. I want you 100 Jesuits to take over the CIA. Well, these 100 Jesuits, they go out and one becomes a Lutheran, one becomes an atheist, one becomes a Baptist, one becomes a Methodist, one becomes uh, whatever else, any number of things, doesn't matter. Maybe two or three stay Catholic, probably several. And they are all different religions. They're all getting their orders from one place, but no one knows. They none, none of them know each other from the outside. Then they go, and they go to an intelligence school, and then they all go and apply for a job. Now, some may get hired, some may not. It doesn't matter. Some, if enough people apply, a few of them are going to get hired. See? Now, when a few get hired, <clears throat> what happens then is they know, let's just say that only three people get hired out of the hundred. It's all right. These three know who the other three are, who the other two are, but no one else knows. So these, all of these three always try to build up the other two and make the others look good and everyone else look bad. Until somehow some of them get promoted, until one of them can get into a hiring position. Once someone gets into a hiring position, then they just start hiring these other people. I mean, they're not discriminating. They'll hire Black or white, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, doesn't matter, but they're all Jesuits underneath, you see. And pretty soon when you get the bottom rung all saturated, then they begin to help each other up the line. And I don't care if the president or whoever else points a top man, unless the top man can get along with the people that are under him, they can't last there. I don't care if it's in prison system, Larry, or any place else. If everyone around you is out to get you, you're not going to stay there very long, are you? You can't do it. Well, I don't know if that was a true article or not, but that's the way secret organizations work. 
And I know from inspiration that the devil's plan is to infiltrate and take over. Now somebody says, but Satan can't uh, become a human being and stay a human being. Well, maybe not, but I want you to notice something over here in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15. Second Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15, says, For such are false prophets, false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of who? Of Christ. Now the Bible says, and predicted a long time ago, that Satan's, the Satan's um, agents would become apostles of Jesus Christ. And no wonder, it says, for Satan himself has transformed himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing of his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. The Bible tells us what they would preach. They would preach righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. They would be ministers of righteousness. Righteousness by faith, faith, love, and righteousness is what they would preach. Now, as I say, if a minister came in preaching love and righteousness and was skillful in all that he did and he advanced, how many of us, how many of us would be influenced? Or how many of us would remain rock-solid true? How many of us could the Lord count on? Now, we find over here in Acts 20, verses 28 and on, Paul warns, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. You know, I've looked at that text. And I said, here is Paul. And he says, for three years I kept warning you, night and day, he said. He must, may, I don't know if that means he spoke overtime or if he had night meetings or what. Night and day, he said, I kept warning you with tears. You know, here was Paul, throw him to prison. What does he do? He sings songs and rejoices. He doesn't cry. Strong, tough man. Shipwrecked out there. How many times? Three times? Beaten five times? He never mentions it except one, one time he was beaten and mentioned, one shipwreck he mentioned. We don't know about the other two. Doesn't even talk about it. I'm looking forward to reading about it in heaven or seeing it on that video up there, you know, in heaven all about it. Paul doesn't tell us about it. He tells us about how he was set out on the water and just set, set out to sea like, like they did, you know, there on the mutiny of, of the bounty, uh, mutiny on the bounty. 
set him out to sea for a night and a day. He was floating out there, he tells us. He just says it happened to him. We don't have the story. Here is Paul, strong. He was, he was willing to stand before Nero. He was beaten. Never shed any tears. But here he is before the church of Ephesus. And he says, don't you remember? I couldn't. When I started telling you about this, I broke down and cried. I couldn't help it. He looked off into the ages and he saw the great apostasy and he saw the millions burning at the stake and being drawn at the rack and dying in dungeons and he just, he just broke down and cried. He says, to think it's going to happen right from here. You people right here. Some, some people are going to rise up from among yourselves and they're going to be the ones who start this great apostasy. And here from among your own selves... People are going to come and people are going to follow them and it's going to result in millions and millions of people dying for their faith and being persecuted. Why? They could hardly believe it. He said, but you remember, I kept telling you about it and telling you about it and telling you about it. You might have th thought I was beating a dead horse. You, can you imagine a preacher standing up and talking about the same thing for three years? I mean, I suppose he wove in a few other truths here and there. But he says, for three years I didn't cease to talk to you about this with tears. And now he's coming a last time. And what's he doing? He's reminding them of it again. So don't forget that now. So for three years, I kept telling you that this was going to happen. You're to guard the flock from this. Protect the flock. And he probably cried again. As he saw the smelt, the burning stench of skin and saw the smoke rising heavenward from all those Fires of Europe during the Middle Ages. Well, regardless of his crying and his pleading and all that he did, the prophecy was fulfilled. But you know, Ellen White applies that prophecy to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It was fulfilled once. But she talks about it being fulfilled again. Not in the Roman Catholic Church, but in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She talks about it over here in five testimonies. Oh, I like preaching with Ron Spear. I can have some books to use. Over here in five testimonies, pages 77. She says, who knows, and she's speaking to the church here, who knows whether God will not give you up to the deceptions you love. Who knows but that the preachers who are faithful, firm, and true may be the last who shall offer the gospel of peace to our unthankful churches. Dear friends, Ellen White look forward to a time when there may be no more faithful, true preachers in the Adventist church. Say, that's startling. These aren't my words. I want to tell you, that's startling. In fact, a few pages later in this same chapter, over on page 80, she says, We are inclined to think that where there are no faithful ministers, there can be no true Christians, but this is not the case. She's giving us a warning. And she says, Where there are how many? Zero. Zero. None left. And she says, this time, who knows but that this time is going to come and going to come soon. 
Who knows but that the preachers who are faithful, firm, and true may be the last who shall offer the gospel of peace to our unthankful churches. It may be that the destroyers are already. She's not saying that it may or may not come. She's saying it may be that it's here right now. It's going to come. But she says now, here back in the 1880s, when she was writing this, she says it may be that the destroyers are already training under the hand of Satan. Now, Paul called them wolves, and she called them destroyers. That's the only difference. Same thing. Wolves destroy. She called them destroyers. And who are they being trained by? By Satan. And she says, who knows but that the destroyers are even now already training under the hand of Satan. They're already in training. And only wait the departure of a few more standard bearers to take their places. Whose places is that? Who is she talking about here? The faithful, firm, and true what? Standard bearers. Who is that? The preachers. Who knows but that the preachers who are faithful, firm, and true may be the last who shall offer the gospel. Who is she talking about here? What, what are the standard bearers here? They're the preachers. Whose places are these people who have been trained by Satan going to take? The preacher's place. Take their places and with the voice of the false prophet. And here's where things get so deceptive. With the voice of the false prophet, they're going to come in. They're just going to rip things apart. Boy, they're going to just tear things apart like a wolf. No, you know how they work like a wolf? No, listen. With the voice of the false prophet, they're going to cry, Peace, peace. Remember, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And they go out and they cry, peace, peace. When the Lord has not spoken peace. Now I told you this is a corollary prophecy. You want to hear what the next sentence is? What did Paul do for three years whenever he talked about this? Oh, he wept. Listen to what Ellen White says. She says, I seldom weep. Now she had just lost her husband when she wrote this. You know, she went through that whole funeral service without a tear. She says she never felt so bad in her life, but she never cried. Because she knew the Lord would work all things out for good. She trusted all in the Lord's hand. I mean, here is Paul, you know. You don't find Ellen White weeping. She'd go through all kinds of things. She was strong. She says, I seldom weep. But now I find my eyes blinded with tears. They are falling on my paper as I write. Just like Paul, wasn't it? Who is she applying it to? Say, dear friends, that's one thing to be applied to the Ephesus church. Ellen White applies it to our church. She says, when God shall work his strange work on the earth, when holy hands bear the ark no longer, Woe will be upon the people. Now I want you to notice that it is still God's ark. She never says it won't be God's ark. But there is coming a time, she doesn't say maybe, she says when it happens, when it happens, it's going to happen. When it happens, when the ark is no longer held by holy hands. There is coming a time, dear friends, in the Adventist church, and someday we're going to have to say the time has come. But that's up to each individual to look at. 
But you can't always put everything in the future. Sometimes things happen. But she says the time is coming when the ark is no longer going to be in holy hands. That's pretty straight testimony. That's not talking about separation at all. It's still God's ark. And dear friend, I'm going to stay with the ark. How about you? But I want to recognize the fact that we're told that destroyers who have been trained by Satan are going to occupy our pulpits before Jesus comes. Well, let's look what it says over here in Testimonies to Ministers. Page 409. She doesn't talk about this just in one place. Here she says, many, what does she say, few? Many will stand in our pulpits with a torch of false prophecy in their hands kindled from the hellish torch of Satan. If doubts and unbelief are cherished, the faithful ministers will be removed from the people. There's coming a time, dear friend, according to prophecy, there may come a time when there are no more faithful, true, and firm preachers among us, but the people who have taken their place will be those who have been trained by Satan, the one who comes down as an angel of light. And he sends his ministers out as ministers of righteousness. And they're going to preach peace, peace. And they're not going to want anyone to stir up the waters or to shake the boat. It's the last thing they're going to want is somebody to come along and stir the waters and shake up the boat. Keep everything running along smoothly. It may be sliding into the more and more worldliness, but just let everything run along smoothly. I tell you, dear friends, that's why we're told in Great Controversy, page 593, we are told that uh, none but those who have fortified their minds with the truths of God's Word are going to stand through the last great conflict. How many? None. Only those. It's time that we are studying the Bible as never before. And over on page 625, she says, Only those who have been diligent students of the Scriptures and who have received the love of the truth will be shielded from the powerful delusion that takes the world captive. By the Bible testimony, these will detect the deceiver in his disguise to all the testing time will come. Satan will, if possible, prevent them from obtaining a preparation to stand in that day. He will so arrange affairs as to hedge up their way, entangle them with earthly treasure, cause them to carry a heavy, wearisome burden, that their hearts may be overcharged with the cares of this life and that day of trial come upon them unawares. I want to tell you, the time to gain this preparation is not in the future, dear friends. Now it's high time that we are spending time, if ever before, in the study of God's Word. And so if I was a devil, I would seek to become a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. Now, I don't want anyone going out and looking at any pastors, but I want you to know what the devil's game plan is. That's the point. But I wouldn't be satisfied with being a pastor. Not me. If I was a devil, I would do a little pastoring. I'd do the best pastoring I could, but as soon as I could, I'd want to move up into administration. 
And then I began to fire the good ones or put them in as small of churches as I could. And I would begin to hire people like me. I would try to put into place and to spread all of the rumors and all of the gossip and anything I could about whatever God was trying to do. I would try to um, cause people to turn away with scorn against any straight testimony. In fact, Ellen White says that this is also what will happen within the church. And testimonies to ministers. On this side. Thank you. You can see it better than I can. Page 409. She says, or 411, she says, Satan will let, has laid every measure possible that nothing should come among us as a people to reprove and rebuke us and to exhort us to put away our errors. And she tells us how he would do it in the page before. She talks about how those who come and give the message, their characters will be assassinated and their way of working will be, will be talked about and things will be picked flaws, they'll pick flaws out of their, their characters they did with Jones and Wagner and they'll be put out of church office. Not only would I try to discredit those who are giving the trumpet a certain sound and those who are giving the straight testimony, by the way, do you know that Ellen White says in early writings, page 270, that the whole destiny of the church depends upon the reception of the straight testimony? The whole destiny. Oh, someone says, no, that's not true. The destiny of the church is fixed and no one can do anything about it. The church is going through and nothing else can happen. Well, dear friend, the church is going through. The question is whether we or I, us, will have a part of it. And when is it going through? It's supposed to have gone through a hundred years ago. She says the whole destiny of the church depends upon the reception of the straight testimony. I would not only try to discredit whatever God was trying to do, but then I would begin to try to try to build up the work that I was doing and the work that all my men were doing. I would put out four-color PR work and I would put out the best, finest reports you've ever seen. Such nice reports and such nice such uh, nice reports. It doesn't matter if the work is crumbling. Everyone would think it's prospering. It's amazing that Adventists today can listen to reports of the work prospering and say, praise the Lord, we're growing by the millions, and they can't even look around and see what's happening and see the work crumbling below their feet. I'm telling you, I haven't been to Africa and I haven't been to South America. So I'm sure the work is going good there. Praise the Lord. I don't know what's happening in those places, but I hear all the reports and I believe whatever I, I see unless I've been there. And I'm sure that there's many people being baptized. But I want to tell you, I've been throughout America, everywhere in America, and I've been in Australia, New Zealand, and Europe, and I want to tell you, wherever I've been in those countries, by whatever standard you want to measure it by, the work is not growing. The work is absolutely crumbling to pieces. And we stand around trying to 
keep up the, the machinery, keep the machinery oiled, keep the machinery running, making sure that everyone feels good about everyone. We don't want to have... We, uh, we don't want anyone to uh, become excited. You know, the Bible says over in Ezekiel 9, verse 4, that it is only those who are concerned about apostasy who are going to be sealed. Those who are concerned about apostasy are those who are going to be sealed. It says, Ezekiel 9, verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. These are the ones who seal. I wish I had time to study with you Isaiah 22. Maybe we'll spend just a few minutes on it. This chapter you can spend hours on. Isaiah 22 is a chapter that's written to the, to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's written to the Valley of Vision. The valleys in Bible prophecy, and I'm going to cover some things real quick. I should take a lot more time. But the valleys in Bible prophecy refer to where the people are, and the mountains refer to where God is. The people are always in the valley, and God is in the mountains. That's where people went to worship. We have the uh, Jesus spoke from Mount Sinai, and the people were in the valley. We go to Joel, and we find multitudes, multitudes in the what? In the valley of decision. We find over here in Isaiah 2 that God's mountain in the last day will be above all the other mountains. We find over in Hosea that the false uh, temples were always built in the mountains. And Jerusalem itself was built in the mountains. God's mountain was there and the heathen had their temples in the mountains. The people dwelt in the valleys and God was worshipped in the mountains. The false gods and the true gods. In the last days, God's mountain is going to be above every other mountain. But here we have the prophecy of the valley where the people are. But this is the valley of vision. Now, all of these are valleys. We find the valley, the people of Moab, and the people of, and every chapter here, and, and um, people of Babylon in chapter 12, and people of the Medes, and the Assyrians, and all of these different countries are represented one after another. In the chapters that precede it, we come up to chapter 21, we find the burden against the wilderness. That's a, that's a valley, but it's a dry valley. The wilderness of the sea. Now, what? that's an interesting thing, a wilderness of the sea. A wilderness is dry and a sea is wet. The sea is the people, but it's a people without Christ. He's the living water. Here's the, the valley. It's the great valley, wilderness valley of the people. What is the valley of the people? Oh, that's Babylon. That's the Catholic church, or that's the false churches over in Revelation. You notice here that it's talking about Babylon. In verse 9 it says, Look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And he cried and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. This is a prophecy about Babylon. That's the valley, the dry and desolate valley of the people. We find a corollary prophecy over in Revelation 18. The valley of the people. This is where all the people, all the people of the world have drunk of their, of their wine. And they have committed fornication with the kings of the earth, the great valley of the people. I want you to notice, though, here in verse 9, it says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now, when did Babylon fall the first time? Back in the Old Testament, right? When does it fall the second time? Well, that's in the second angel's message, isn't it? The second angel's message says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. 
Now, I want you to notice that most of Isaiah is written for the last days. It had a secondary application for the people of their own day, and it had a, also an application for the people of Jesus' first coming. But it had a special application for the last days. The special application of Isaiah is for the last days. And here in Isaiah, it's talking about, first it talks about Babylon. It has Babylon versus Jerusalem. That's what we find over in Revelation. This is the whole book of Revelation is condensed here in Revelation in Isaiah 21 and 22. Spiritual Babylon and spiritual Jerusalem. This is talking about the Babylon which fell and fell again. That's spiritual Babylon. That's the second fall of Babylon is the fall of spiritual Babylon. Does your Bible say fallen once or fallen twice? Twice. What Babylon is this that fell the second time? Was it literal or was it spiritual Babylon? It was spiritual Babylon. That is a direct quote. That I, The second angel's message quotes from this verse exactly. Quotes right from this verse. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That's the message of the second angel's message. Now we come over to the next chapter. And we, if we have time, we'll find that that's speaking of spiritual Israel too. This is the burden of the valley of vision. This is the people of the last days who are the people of vision. Now, there's three words for valleys in the, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew. One is a great wide valley. One is a medium-sized valley. And one is a tiny little narrow valley. Now, over here in Revelation 21, you have a great wide valley. That's all the people of the world. Here in Revelation 22, if we knew Hebrew, we'd find this is a tiny little narrow valley. That's the people of God. But these, this is the valley of vision. Who are the people of vision in the last days? Who does that signify? Revelation 12, 17. Here, the dragon was wroth that the woman went to make war with the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the what? The faith of Jesus and the faith of Jesus over in Revelation 19, 10 is what? Spirit of prophecy. It's the visions. The people of vision are God's true people in the last days. This whole prophecy is a special prophecy about, about the... The remnant people of Revelation 12, 17. And it talks all about the people here. It says, What ails you now that you have gone up into the housetops? You are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Yet you're slain men. You have slain men, but they're not slain in, with a sword nor dead in battle. It says, How come you're making such a noise here as though everything is going on prosperously and smoothly when your churches are decimated but not from battle? You haven't had any battle with the Baptists or the Catholics or anyone else, but your people are slain, not in battle. There's never been a more fit description of our church ever given. Our young people are, are gone, but not from battle, from our own schools, from our own churches and from our own homes. They're slain, but not in battle. They're not out on the front lines. They haven't been martyred as missionaries over in Africa. These aren't martyred. That's not where we've lost our people. But they're gone. They're slaughtered. Our churches are, are getting smaller. What ails you that you're so joyous, the Bible says. It says, all your rulers have fled together. They have captured by the ar ar archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They unite together in confederacies. I was talking to someone in the general conference about a problem that we, that, uh, we were having and he says, well, I want to tell you, this is one of the vice presidents. He said, it shouldn't be this way, but the way, our, what we run, the way we normally run, 
is that the union president always backs up the conference president, division president backs up the union president, and the general conference backs up the division president. Everyone has to support everyone because who knows when you may have to be supported someday. Support confederacy. Therefore I said, look away from me, I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord of hosts, and the valley of vision breaking down the walls and the crying to the mountains. It shall come to pass, verse 7 says, that your choicest valley shall be full of chariots. It's going to come a time when our choicest institutions are full of non-Adventist employees. I want to tell you that most of our Adventist hospitals in America have from 70 to 80% non-Adventist employees now. They are full, not of Adventists. Our choicest institutions that we have built are full of chariots from Elam. And the horsemen shall set themselves in array against the gate. It says he removed the protection of Jerusalem. The day is coming, dear friend, as at Battle Creek, that the protection is going to be removed from God's church and we're going to find financial disaster after financial disaster and every other disaster you can imagine. The protection is going to be removed. He removed the protection from Jerusalem. When he removed it back in the days of Jesus, Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus and by the Roman army. There's coming a time again when God is going to remove the protection from Jerusalem. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great, and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the walls. The Bible says instead of, of looking to God, you're going to look to your horses and to your chariots, and then you're going to break down some walls to strengthen some others. You're going to consolidate. Instead of going to God and saying, God, what's the matter? Pull together churches, pull together conferences, pull together schools or hospitals, consolidate instead of spreading out. It says, You also made reservoirs between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect to him who fashioned it long ago. You looked to everyone else. You went and got, had studies done by non-Adventist people, or you had these committees working, or you... You tried to sit down and figure out every way in the world to make it work, but you never looked to the spirit of prophecy. You never looked to the Bible. You never looked to the God, your maker. You looked everywhere else but to God, to your maker. In that day, the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning. That's Ezekiel 9, verse 4. He called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and girding and sackcloth. But instead he found joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating wine, drinking, eating meat and drinking wine. A little healthy for him here too, isn't there? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We're going to prepare for this life, prepare for the next century, prepare for the future. What did God call for? He called for concerned laymen and ministers, concerned people who are who are crying between the porch and the altar for all the abominations that are done in it. Now the most startling verse is yet to come. It says, Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity, what iniquity was that? The iniquity of saying everything is all right when everything is all wrong. Of crying peace, peace when the Lord has not spoken peace. 
That's what the false shepherds do. This inequity of being joyful and, and saying that everything is going good when everything is not going good. When God is calling for revival and reformation and we're saying don't rock the boat. Surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you. Say, have you ever read such a verse? Even to your death, says the Lord of hosts. Now that's exactly what it says in Ezekiel 9, verse 4. It says, The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done it. To the others, he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, neither have you any pity. Utterly slay old and young maidens and little children and women. Do not come near anyone on who has the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they begin with the elders who are before the temple. The Bible says there will be no atonement for those who go along saying everything is okay when God is calling for revival and reformation. I want to tell you if there's any preachers that happen to listen to this tape, don't throw it away. These, this is the most fearful warning in all the Bible. There will be no atonement, the Bible says. This is one of the worst sins in the, that, God, that God talks about in the church. The sin of saying everything is all right when everything is all wrong. The sin of going along and just placating people when God calls for revival and reformation. I'm telling you, here in England... English history. Who was the best friend of the English people? Was it Chamberlain or was it Winston Churchill? Was it the one who says, listen, we're going to have peace, peace here? Or was it the one who says, we better get ready for war because Hitler is building up? Now... The Bible says that the time is coming when from among your own selves men will arise calling men after themselves and they'll be wolves. Somehow we have thought of the wolves as being, you know, having long fangs, salivating, just waiting to tear apart. But Ellen White reveals to us that the wolves are those who go about speaking peace, peace, when the Lord has not spoken peace. The thing that tears up our churches and destroys our church more than anything else is smooth sermons. Let me read you some statements. Volume 1, page 321. She says, In this fearful time, just before Christ is to come the second time, God's faithful preachers will have to bear a still more pointed testimony than was borne by John the Baptist. Oh, I tell you, I have puzzled and puzzled over this. Have you read what John the Baptist said? He called the preachers... Oh, I don't know. 
Don't know how he did it. These leaders of the church, the Sadducees and Pharisees and priests, he said, you snakes in the grass. He didn't just say snakes, poisonous snakes in the grass. You vipers, crawling around seeing who you can bite. He, they came to him from baptism. He says, I won't baptize you. Bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. Already the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree, dear friend, I don't care. Every tree. I don't care if it's your church or the conference office or the college or the hospital. John the Baptist, under inspiration, says every tree that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down. Battle Creek thought it would never happen to them, but dear friend, it was. Somehow we've come to the place where we think this church is invincible. Nothing can happen to it because it's God's church. I want to tell you everything can happen to this church. There is only eight who went into the ark. And we are told that the vast majority of this church is going to be lost. One Testimonies, Volume 1, this one that I have right here, page 608 and 609, says that only a few, only a small minority are going to be saved of those who, are, who call themselves Seventh-day Adventists. Only a few. Now, you know, I decided a long time ago I may make a lot of mistakes. I may make a lot of mistakes. But I'm going to persist on, even if I make mistakes doing it, trying to do what God wants, fulfill, and whatever it takes. I'm going to count this life for nothing that I might make the next life. I've decided that when it comes time to call, to give the straight testimony, whatever it takes, if God calls for me to do it, I've got to do it. In love, of course. In love. I've decided that I don't care how many other people, I do care very much how many other people are lost, but however many other people are lost, I don't want to be lost. I don't care what kind, I don't care if I have the most smooth speaking preacher that's ever lived on earth. I don't care if I have Satan himself as my preacher. You know, I don't want to have to come to the end of the millennium and say, Lord, you know, don't burn me too long. It wasn't my fault. You know that I had the most smooth-speaking preacher who could quote the scriptures here and there in the next place. He could put all these things together and he completely fooled me. And here the Lord says, I know, I'm so sorry. I'll have mercy on you. You'll only burn for five minutes. Listen, dear friend, I don't want any excuses. I can just imagine those people outside the ark back in, in uh, when the rain started falling, you know, back in... In Noah's day, I can imagine all the excuses. Oh, if you hadn't beat me over the head with the spirit of prophecy, I would be in the ark now. I don't care. I want to be in. I don't want some good excuse for being out. You know, some people think if they only have a good excuse, and I tell you there's going to be some dandies, going to be some wonderful excuses, going to make people feel oh so good because at least they have an excuse for why they're lost. I don't want any excuses. But I'm going to tell you, friend, the Bible says that only those who fortified their minds or the truths of God's Word are going to make it. Everyone else is going to have an excuse. I don't want any excuses. As a preacher, I don't want any excuses. I'm not going to get up there and tell the Lord, well, you know, it's my conference president or it's the way I was trained or all this other kind of stuff. No, I don't want any of that kind of stuff. 
This says that God calls for a more pointed testimony that was borne by John the Baptist. A responsible, important work is before them, and those who speak smooth things God will not acknowledge as his shepherds. A fearful woe is upon them. Now you read the woes of Revelation. I'm going to tell you, you're going to get scared if you believe the Bible at all. The woes. I was reading in Desire of Ages just the other day. I'm reading it through again. And thank you. Someplace up here it is. That's not it, though. But anyway, she says, she says that, uh, oh, that's his Desire of Ages. I've got to have mine uh, on that book because I've just been reading it through. But that's all right. Um, she says that John the Bapt, uh, that Judas um, had received the woe of the Lord and talks about how the, he was, uh, you know, the dogs ate him up there and all. I thought, where did he have that? And I started looking back, looking back, looking back. And here I found it. Woe to him uh, uh, that, uh, what, did, what did he say there in the upper chamber? Anyway, he gave the sop to and he says, uh, but woe to him who does this or whatever. Betrayeth the Son of Man, by woe to him that betrayeth the Son of Man. It's just one word in there, but it was a woe, and that woe was fulfilled. I want to tell you, the woes of the Bible are always fulfilled. The word woe, W-O-E, is a, has a special meaning, and it always means tribulation. And the Bible says that a fearful woe is upon every preacher who refuses to give this straight testimony. I want to tell you, if anyone is thinking about being a preacher... Don't take it lightly because I'm going to tell you God is going to judge the preachers. There's no place to be unless you're a man of courage. Anybody that's going to be a preacher today, they're in for the wrath of God unless they have courage to stand up and give the straight testimony the way God wants it to be given because the souls are going to be, going to be upon them. I mean, what are we told in Ezekiel 3? When I tell the man to stand up and to blow the trumpet, give the trumpet a certain sound, he refuses to give it. He says, they'll be lost. The wicked will be lost, but I'll count their blood to them. Where have we gone as a church? That we've become like jellyfish, weak backbone. We're afraid to say anything that might cause any trouble or the conference president might call down or something might happen. We're afraid. Well, so be it, dear friend. I'd rather, I'd rather receive whatever... Whatever there is, receive here and be ready for heaven. I'd rather, I fear God more than I fear man, don't you? But there will come consequences to giving the straight testimony. Two, I don't think Elder Spear has a book, Spiritual Gifts, here. Well, Spiritual Gifts, page 283 and 284. Ellen White says... Sins exist in the church that God hates, yet they are scarcely touched for fear of making enemies. She says whenever someone arises to give it, she says there are those like Ahab who point the finger and say, you were the one who troubleth Israel. But she says they are not the ones who trouble Israel. She goes on to say just as long as God has a church, he'll have those who cry aloud and spare not. But there will be those who rise up against it and will not bear the straight testimony. Dear friend, Satan has made this church the special object of his attack. And although Satan cannot come down in person, 
and go to a revival meeting, get baptized, and become a preacher. The, the, the prophecy says that he can find people to do it for him. And she says the time may come when that's all there is. When that's all there is. Now you know how they all operate? I tell you, we could go on for a long time here. I can't do that. But evangelism, I mean testimonies to ministers. Testimonies to ministers, page 361. She says, Satan's methods tend to one end, and she's talking about our those who become Satan's agents in the church. She's talking about our church specifically. She says, Satan's methods tend to one end to make men the slaves of men. She's talking about how that some will come in and they will dominate over the church and try to run the church without the layman's influence or support. They'll do this by manipulation, by intrigue, by intimidation, by control of one way or another. And I tell you, it's happening all over the world. It's happening, it's almost scary how, to what extent it's happening in. But you know what? God is going to have a church, pure and true, when He comes. It's not going to be another church, it's going to be this church. God is going to take this church and He is going to purify it and He's going to do it with the common people. Five testimonies. In that same chapter that I read, she goes on and tells what are going to be the results. She says, The days of the purification of the church are hastening on apace. God will have a people pure and true. In the mighty sifting season soon to take place, we shall better be able to measure the strength of Israel. The days are fast approaching. The signs reveal that the time is near when the Lord will manifest that His fan is in His hand and He will thoroughly purge His floor. The days are fast approaching when there will be great perplexity and confusion. Satan clothed in angels of light will deceive if possible the very elect. And that's the work he's doing today, dear friends. Clothed as an angel of light. There will be God's many and Lord's many. Every wind of doctrine will be blowing. She's talking about the church here, friend. There will be God's many and Lord's many. Every wind of doctrine will be blowing. Those who have rendered supreme homage to science falsely so-called will not then be leaders. Those who have trusted the intellect, genius, or talent will not then stand at the head of rank and file. They did not keep pace with the light. Those who have proved themselves unfaithful will not then be entrusted with a, with a flock. In the last solemn work, few great men will be engaged. They are self-sufficient, independent of God, and He cannot use them. The Lord has faithful servants who in the shaking, testing time will be revealed of you. They are precious ones now hidden who have not bowed the knee to Baal. They have not had the light which has been shining in a concentrated blaze upon you. It may be under a rough and uninviting exterior that the pure brightness of a genuine Christian character will be revealed. Dear friend, today God is training people here and there in the next place. He's training them to stand true for Him. They may be put out of office today. They may not be respected today. I want to tell you we should learn to use all the tact we have, but let's not become so tactful that no one knows what we're saying. We need to learn to love people. We need to pray for people. It may not be appreciated today, but dear friend, there's coming a time. There's coming a time when God is going to pull the remnant together. 
and he's going to have an army, fair as the sun, going forth like an army with banners. It's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost. We're told that we are going to have a Pentecost even greater than the one the disciples had after Jesus died. That's in eight testimonies, page 21. The Pentecost coming up is even going to be greater. But the sad news is not everyone that's here will be there then. That's the sad news. Only those will be there then who are willing to stand up and be counted for right. Who are willing to stand up, whether it costs them their office, whether it costs them whether they are made fun of, fun of from the pulpit, whether whatever happens, they're going to stand up and be counted. That's the only people that God is going to use then. He can only use those who can be counted. We're told in five testimonies, page 136, what the last great test will be. It says that... Um, The great proportion of those who now appear to be genuine and true will prove to be base metal. That's the great proportion. The very atmosphere is polluted with sin. Soon God's people will be tested by fiery trials. And then it goes on to say that now is the time for God's people to show themselves true to principle. When the religion of Christ is most held in contempt, when His law is most despised, then should our zeal be the warmest and our courage and firmness the most unflinching to stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us. What does it mean to forsake? That means they were with you, but they forsook you. To forsake doesn't mean... This isn't talking about, you know, the enemies down the road someplace. To forsake means they were with you and then they left you. Isn't that right? When the majority forsake us. How many are going to forsake us? The majority are going to forsake us. To fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few, this will be our test. Now, dear friend, if we can't keep up with a horseman, with a footman, how are we going to keep up with a horseman? God gives us a little test today. If we can't keep up with the little problems in our church today, what are we going to do then? If we can't stand for truth today, we won't be able to do it then. This will be our test. At this time, we must gather warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their cowardice, and loyalty from their treason. Well, dear friend, the Lord in goodness, I have found is scattered every one, so there's just one or two in each church. It's nice to come together in meetings like this, but I know when the meetings are over, we are all go to our own way, and I find it everywhere throughout the world, down in Australia, New Zealand, America, there is one or two in every church. They're standing f firm and brave, true and brave, you know, all by themselves. And, oh, it gets so discouraging sometimes. Meetings like this, you can come together and gather warmth from each other. But you know, the time is coming, we're told, we're going to have to gather our warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their cowardice. We're going to have to stand and say, well, I don't know where everyone else is. I love them all, but somebody has to stand for truth. Jesus died for me, and I have to be willing to stand for Him. Amen. And looking to Jesus and looking to the cross... We're going to have to say, Lord, you stood there and took all those taunts, all that abuse. You stood true and firm for principle there for me so that I might be saved. Now, by your grace, I'm going to stand for you. I'm going to stand for you. I'm going to stand for your principles. I'm going to stand for the spirit of prophecy.
I'm going to stand for truth. I'm not going to be vindictive. I'm not going to be hateful. I'm going to do like Jesus. Say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But this is the message that I must give. Shall we stand for prayer? Gracious Father, we are living in the last days. I thank you that you have you have your Pauls and you have your Nicodemuses and you have your Josephs and you have your people. We would not judge anyone because we may misjudge. And just the person, people that we think are those who are our worst enemies may p- turn out to be a Paul or somebody like him. So we can't judge. We wouldn't seek to judge. We certainly don't want to cast any railing accusation against anybody. Jesus didn't even do it against the devil. We don't want to become accusers of people. We don't want to We don't want to become people who are hard to get along with. We want to be peacemakers. We want to love one another. But, oh, Lord, we want to stand for truth, whatever the cost. We want to stand for truth and righteousness. We want to give the trumpet a certain sound. And we want to be concerned about sin. We want to love the sinner, but we want to be concerned about the sin and about your church. And Lord, we love your church, but we can see that it that's in a condition, a sick condition, a Laodicean condition. And oh, it makes us so sad. We love it even more. But Lord, we want to pray and we want to work. We want to stand true and tall for you as you did for us. And I pray that you will help every soul here as we go back. The people will be able to see in us the love of Jesus as they've never seen before. But they'll be able to see in us a courage and a determination to see the church purified and to see a revival and reformation such as they have never seen before. And Lord, may we continue on not getting discouraged. May we continue on knowing that you are on our side with prayer and faith. May we press on until we see the purification, the revival that you promised would take place. Keep us humble during the whole process. And Lord, if you ever make any of us leaders as elders or pastors or anything else, oh, may we never become, may we never take, may we never become lords of the people, but may we become servants, servants, leading as Jesus did and as Jesus taught us to do. And we pray also that you would give us that love for those who despitefully use us that you prayed that we might have. Teach us to be just like Jesus in every way so that when he comes, we may be like him. May we not be deceived by any deceivers or any deceptions of Satan, 
no matter how smooth or how cleverly clever they may be given, may we not be deceived. But may we study our Bible daily and prayerfully until we are so grounded on the firm rock of truth that nothing can, nothing can cause us to be lost. May we not come up to the end, Father, and give any, have some good excuse while we're lost. May we not have the great joy of having the best excuse in all the world of why we're lost. May we not have any excuses at all, Lord. May we simply be saved. At all costs, Lord, may we be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.